Hey, welcome to Stoner. Uh, this week's episode is exactly the kind of thing that made me want to do this show. Uh, my guest is Matt Taibbi. However, there is a phantom second guest, uh, his anonymous co-author on a book uh, he wrote this year called The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing. Basically, he found out that a, a longtime acquaintance of his had a secret life as a marijuana kingpin, uh, sending trunks uh, full of product uh, all over the country. Uh, it's a rise story, a fall story. I learned a lot about how the gray market for weed actually uh, works in this book. Um, I wanted to get uh, his anonymous co-author on, but I wasn't sure we could ensure his uh, safety. The book was published serially uh, through a company called Substack, which I think is pretty cool. Shouts to Substack and uh, the good people behind it. Uh, you can read it all if you want to read it before you uh, listen to this episode. It's at taibbi, T-A-I-B-B-I dot substack dot com slash archive. All right, let's do it. Matt Taibbi, uh, welcome to Stoner. Thanks for having me up. You have a book out. Do you say it's out? What do you say when it's mid-serialization? <laughs> you have a book uh, midstream? Yeah, it's midstream. It's almost done. Yeah, you're like, I mean, um, if yeah. this was a like serial TV show, I think we'd be like like two episodes before the end. Like yeah, after yeah. this, we'd be launching into the finale. Yeah, I think we have like a couple of red herrings left to, to uh, deal with, and then, and then we're at the end. So... Um, so Tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book. So uh, obviously, you know, this is not my usual thing. I'm more or less uh, completely a straight journalist. I, I've, my previous books have all been um, uh, nonfiction journalism. Uh, but over the course of my travels in the last uh, few years, I, I met um, a person uh, who, let's just say I met him in another capacity uh, while working on another story. And after years of knowing this person, he came out to me um, as a high-level drug dealer. Uh, and he did so because he wanted to tell his story. And we couldn't figure out a way to do it that wouldn't compromise his identity, but would also, at the same time, convey the realness of his voice. So we settled on this this kind of um, approach, which is sort of a uh, a fictionalization of, of of his experience as um, a very high level weed dealer in this country. Yeah. So the basic uh, outline of this person's story is: uh, we know that he's living in California, and we know that he's involved with shipping large amounts of marijuana around the country, primarily in cars, but also using FedEx to various uh, recipients uh, who then sell it at a, a lower level. Yeah, and he's been involved in the business at, at every level. I mean, he's, he's in his mid-30s now. He's been doing this. You know, he's he's African-American. He, he, he sort of comes from um, a, a divided home, so he, he sort of grew up half in the projects and half in the upscale suburbs. Um, a little bit like that show Snowfall. He has a similar background where he was he was traveling back and forth between uh, rich and poor worlds. So he's been he's been doing this for a long time, and he's been a dealer at almost every level that you can imagine. And and fairly recently got got involved um, in doing it at a you know at more of an industrial level, let's just say. So 
the book, uh, you know, he starts off as a teenager. So the book really covers the last 20 years and in some ways um, not about the uh, rise of uh, big scale drug dealing, but about the demise of this kind of uh, gray area, California marijuana market, where it used to be extremely profitable to send packages all around the country. Uh, these pounds are just getting cheaper and cheaper to the point uh, where towards the end of the story, uh, he's on his way out of the business. Yeah, and, and he, he's driven out by a combination of factors. One is that law enforcement is tightening all the time. He, he's had a couple of close scrapes. He's never been arrested for, for a drug charge in his entire life. And that's one of the one of the things that I thought made his story interesting is that uh, he tells it from the perspective of somebody who's never been caught. Most most true crime stories are, you know, told from people after the fact, you know, when they're, they've already been arrested. Uh, but he he manages to sort of escape the net. But even if it hadn't been for that, he um, probably would have been out anyway because the prices uh, have been have been driven down so much uh, in recent years. That and the fact that there are so many sort of corporate um, sharks that are swimming around the business that he he's just afraid that he's going to be driven out. For you, like, how much of this stuff did you know about before you wrote this book? What was what was your uh, level of knowledge of the? Uh, uh, mostly illegal side of the marijuana business. So I have to say, you know, I, I've done a lot of kind of street reporting in the past. I wrote a, um, I just wrote a book about police brutality a couple of years ago, and a lot of my sources were drug dealers. So I, you know, I kind of knew a lot about street dealing anyway. Um, you know, I have my own, I have my own history there a little bit. Um, but. Uh, but what, I what, what was lot. what was your history? Uh, what, what, when did you first as, uh, try as a marijuana? Consumer. <laughs> yeah, well, tell me a little bit about your consumer history. Um, what, um, when did you first try marijuana? Uh, God, I was probably fourteen, you yeah. know, fifteen, something like that in school. You know, like everybody else, and I, I think um, uh, I had a pretty normal experience. A lot, a lot of a lot of munchies, a lot of um, you know zoning out to TV. I've always thought that marijuana should be legal. I always thought compared uh, to a drug like alcohol that it was far more harmless. Um, and I never understood the prohibition against it. It never made any sense to me at all. Uh, oddly enough, the very first thing that I ever sold in my life as a journalist was a picture for High Times magazine. Um, <laughs> because um, I was living in Russia uh, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I took a picture of a bunch of Russian soldiers uh, reading High Times, and that actually got into the magazine. So that was sort of an odd, you know, side note to my, to my career. But, you know, I, I spoke weed like, like almost everybody else in this country. Was, um, was weed part of uh, expatriate uh, Russia for you? Like people smoking weed? Did it exist even? Yeah, definitely it was. I mean, look, the Russians have a very different... Um, uh, view of, of that culture. A lot of it is hash that comes from Central Asia. Yeah, I guess, um, I guess like Afghanistan is probably like like uh, the Humboldt of, of Russia. It, it is Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, um, uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, and they they have a very particular way of um, of smoking. They they sell these these really disgusting cigarettes uh, that 
farmers know as paparossi. They 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 have these kind of really really thick cardboard cardboard um, cigarette holders, and you can force the the tobacco out and put marijuana in. It's like an instant joint. Every every Russian soldier in in the country knows this trick. So um, and they usually mix it in with this very very strong Russian tobacco. Uh, which gives it a, an extra kick. So that 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 was really my experience with that. And I, I guess I probably smoke more Russian hash and weed than I have American weed in my life. I would imagine. So, yeah. When he started unpacking this story for you, like, did he tell you the whole story in one sitting, or was there toe dipping um, to see how you were going to react to this information? There was a little bit of toe dipping. Um, you know, he, he, he kind of mentioned it in passing. And then there were there were a few sort of big details that he he broached with me that um, that were I, I think you wanted to see how how I would react to those. I think the biggest one and this is the, the part of the story that I found probably most surprising was this this concept of, um, you know, even in the legal weed market, there's a huge black market because not all of the. You know the the harvest will pass inspection, and so there's a lot of a lot of weed that it that gets, ends up getting shipped east uh, and to other markets that might have flunked the test uh, in a place like Colorado or California because it has something in it. You know, and it doesn't mean that it's dangerous necessarily. It just means that there there's a secondary market for that stuff. Yeah, the impression I've gotten from talking to a few people on this show is that. You know, a lot of those pipelines predate legalization and there was really no incentive to convert them over uh, for people who had like lucrative direct FedEx connections where they're sending things from, you know, say California to New York. Uh, a lot of people just didn't didn't want to change as business uh, dies hard. You know, there was still probably more profit in, in not getting tested and not uh, going through the whole legal rigmarole. Um, so the primary part of this book is set like sort of during the Obama years. Is that right? I, I didn't have like a total grasp on exactly when everything's happening. Yeah, that's about right. Um, I would say that the the most most of the action takes place during those years and in the years since. But uh, yeah, this this whole this whole period where you know he he's in california he's ended up there uh, by way of the midwest uh where he was running grow ups out of houses that sort of thing he gets there and he finds that he has this very unusual role with all the big farmers and you know places like humboldt county which is that um they turn to him when they have shipments that uh, they didn't know what to do with or or they and he, he occupies this kind of role as a liaison uh, where they can unload stuff that they didn't they didn't have a market for. What do you make? You're, you're a, a reporter who covers uh, American politics for uh, for Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. This issue of marijuana legalization is one of the strangest issues in America on several levels. One is this unequal differing states. You know, you can be a felon and one foot over. You can be a legal business person. But the other, perhaps even bigger uh, story to me is that younger people in this country 
from the far right to the far left are all in favor of marijuana legalization. How do you read a, a political issue that is not uh, dividing along our, our, our country's general line right now? Well, I, I always think that those issues are more interesting than the other issues. I mean, you know, as as a political journalist, I've always been very distressed by there, there's a kind of relentless pressure in our business to take any political issue and to call it a left or a right issue immediately, which eliminates a whole series of um, issues that we can really talk about, like anything that's bipartisan, like, you know, military interventionism, we just don't talk about that that much. And this is another one. I mean, I think you'll find that there's a, a growing libertarian streak on the right that is opposed to the drug war on a variety of grounds. Um, and then they're finding common ground with people on the left who've always opposed it for all the usual reasons, you know, that it's, it's an impeachment on civil liberties, it's an excuse to lock up poor people and minorities. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing. I think the, the, the government is 20 or 30 years behind the population on this one. And uh, it's, it's distressing that even at this late date, uh, it's still controversial and still difficult. When you started hearing, uh, his, uh, I believe he identifies as Huey in the story. Mm-hmm. Huey's yeah. story. Uh, we'll call him Huey for the uh, we'll purposes of, of this yeah. program. Um, I know that you're a journalist who's who's worked places that that fact check, and you're used to calling people and making sure stories are true. And for obvious reasons. Many of those uh, options are not available uh, in this story. But I'm wondering, like, what you did to feel comfortable putting this story out. Well, I did check a few things, you know, um, to the extent that I could. Uh, you know, I would ask to be put in touch with people who corresponded to the actual people in the story. Um I independently looked at, you know, for instance, Huey makes all kinds of claims about having been in certain situations. And um, you, you always want to find out how close or how far your sources are to checkable reality. Right. And, right. and there, there would be references to things that happen in real life um, that I would look up and, and they panned out pretty much every time. I mean, there's, there's a scene in there, for instance, uh, that that I put in Indiana, which is really, really about Ohio. And it has to do with a, a consortium of kind of wealthy investors who were trying to take over the the state's uh, marijuana market there or, or would be. Including marijuana. Nick Lachey. Nick Lachey. Yeah, exactly. And um, and it turns out that, uh, you know, that everything that but, you know, and I heard the story, elements of the story before it was news, actually. Um, and uh, it all it all panned out. It all came out in the news. And it's it's all true. So there, there were lots of things like that um, that uh, that were reassuring to, to to a journalist, I would say. The other thing is, though, of course, this is it's it's technically fiction. And we did actually work quite hard to to make it truly a fictional story in the sense that, you know, if there were any real people who might take offense, we worked to fictionalize it enough so that people couldn't recognize those people. So getting um, towards the end of the story, the the only part that's kind of broken my sense of reality 
in the mm-hmm. story is that like many of the threads set up in the first half of the story seem to be like converging on a point where they can be mutually resolved. And that was really the first time I was like, oh, am I reading a novelization of a movie? Kind of a like, is there like a a layer of reality between these two stories? And I am super curious what that is, although I I, rec- I recognize that I can't just flatly ask you it. Uh, otherwise, that would ruin it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, throughout, I've been getting, you know, feedback from people and, you know, we're we're feeling our way through this process. Um, and I'd have some people who complain, yeah, what about that thread? We got to, we got to work that back in. And, and as a writer and as somebody who's read a million novels in my life, it sort of goes against my instincts just to introduce a character or a theme and then just not follow up on it. So yeah, I worry about that. I think maybe if I were to take a second pass at the story, if there were if there were things that I might do to to, to eliminate that kind of feeling that you're getting, um, but we did we we did want to resolve things. Okay, so you end. are actually writing this in real time, so it's not the serialization is not a gimmick. You are have legitimately not finished it now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, we had a huge chunk of it done, and then uh, and then we are at this point now serializing it. So let's put it that way. So in terms of his uh, weed dealing career, what surprised you most about the way that this whole thing has evolved, the legal, the illegal, the corporate versus the street level? Like uh, for you as someone who generally reports on a different world, uh, what were the details that really captured you? Well, I had begun hearing complaints from people about, uh, about this sort of thing a while ago. Like, you know, again, my last book was about um, about the police killing of Eric Garner here in New York City, and uh, one of one of Garner's best friends actually was a weed dealer. And uh, when I was talking to him, he said, "You know, just you watch. This is the this is one of the last places we can make money. They're going to take that away from us. Um, they're they're going to make it legitimate, and they're going to go in and they're going to take all the money away." In other words, that's that's the way it looks from like a poor neighborhood in New York City. Sure. And that's one of the big themes, you know, that, that Huey talks about. And he talks about it as someone, you know, who's who's more, I would say, educated and has a political perspective on it, has some experience in politics even. And, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting thing. And this whole issue of whether or not we're going to allow felons or people with records as drug dealers to be in the business now. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a fascinating topic and it's kind of underexplored in the media. Yeah. I think there was a, a California initiative that that's come up recently, uh, that was, uh, related to the potential like expungement of records. Um, mm-hmm. it seems more likely that people will be able to, uh, erase felonies then they will allow felons. It seems like the most likely path would be some sort of an amnesty. But I, I think the the amnesty they're aimed at is is mostly for people who have possession charges, not uh, right. dealing charges. So uh, not a lot of relief uh, on the immediate horizon for people at this scale. Right. And, and even when it's not a, a direct filter, like, a, you know, a bar on, on somebody with a felony drug record, there's all kinds of other filters that they're trying to impose, you know, like the, the, the Colorado rule where they're asking you to submit 10 years of 
credit reports or whatever, yeah. or whatever it is. You know, there aren't a lot of people who are from the underground um, who've been, you know, living in an underground economy for that long who are going to be able to qualify. So that to me doesn't seem fair. I mean, I think I, I understand that society doesn't necessarily want to encourage people who've flouted the law for a long time to to suddenly profit from it. But I think in, in this case, there, there should be an exception. I mean, this, there, there are people who have been in this business for hundreds of years, families, I mean, um, who are going to be excluded from this when it becomes legal. And that doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, it's sort of interesting when um, a system really tolerates a behavior. And I would say at this point, the U.S. can't say that they are unaware that thousands of pounds of marijuana are being mailed with the official U.S. Postal System and FedEx, et cetera. It's just, uh, it's known. And it supports this vast network of, of state gray, you know, uh, I guess they're black markets, but there are states that may have medical legalization and there's recreational weed being brought from California. Uh, and then you have these other circuits like uh, pill mills from Florida, just flooding right. Midwestern states. And they become the sort of de facto standard for a period. Like in Huey's story, there's a good, seems like a decade plus, maybe even 20 years where it's just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. We just did it. You know, like right. that's how it works. Like that's how the business works. Like there's a new legal business, but these are all just like business types. It's kind of incredible uh, that we would think that the war on drugs would ever be won uh, with these me- these techniques because it, it mostly just seems like a business with risks in the way right. that he describes it. Yeah, and it's it's really not that different from the kind of regulatory risks that, that big corporations that sell dangerous products uh, assume all the time. I mean, you talk about car companies, they, they figure in the amount of loss they're going to take from lawsuits because cars crash or yep. because, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical company because of lawsuits because of unexpected side effects. Uh, I think in Huey's business, he got to a level where he just started to figure in that a certain number of my people are going to get hit. They're going to end up behind bars. I'm going to lose packages. I'm going to lose uh, X, Y, and Z. And he only starts paying attention when the numbers go significantly higher than he expects. So I, you're absolutely right. I think it's, it, you know, for, for a while now, especially marijuana, um, has, has essentially just been a big corporate business that had a different kind of risk to it. It, it also uh, struck me that as he's recruiting these people, say, to do these cross-country car runs where you have four cars driving cross-country, one car is loaded down full trunk, the other ones are serving various decoy functions, um, that this doesn't feel so dissimilar to like being like a like a contractor in Iraq, where it's like, <laughs> right. yeah, it's like, it's a <laughs> shitty job. I wouldn't do it. You know, you're, you're risking your free, your life for, uh, not your life, but you're risking something pretty terrible happening for, you know, a thousand, a few thousand bucks a day for a few days, you know, but it's like, um, we ask people to do that in America. We ask people to risk their, their life and freedom for a few thousand bucks. I, uh, I actually, I knew people who, (laughs) I was embedded in Iraq for a little while and, um, you know, I knew people who work for companies like KBR, who used to uh, who used to do exactly that, drive conways across the country, and um, there were even uh, jokes about the uselessness of a lot of those trips. Like the company strongly encouraged 
these people to take trips for just about anything. Like they could be driving a manila folder, you know, with a report in it uh, because they would get paid so much by the government for each one of these convoys. So they, they call those useless trips um, transporting sailboat fuel. (laughs) 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 And, uh, and yeah, you're absolutely right. The, 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 The people who were doing the driving were like, man, I'm risking my life for this. Like, it's just a, you know, it's a money job, but it's a job, you know? So yeah, it, it is in a weird way, um, you know, similar to that, right? Like yeah. you're, you're risking your freedom for something that just really shouldn't be a risk at all. It reminds me sometimes also of those, like, you know, those reality shows where people are like working on like Alaskan, like fishing boats. <laughs> right, it's like that right. kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's seasonable labor. Like it's pretty dangerous. Um, <laughs> you should be pretty careful. Although the people who are doing this are not really the people who are going to be super careful. Uh, right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What has what has the reaction been like uh, for Huey and for are, are other people who are who are in the story aware that it's out now? Yeah, I, I think they like it. You know, I mean, uh, I think a lot of the people that he deals with um, have the same frustrations that this that this character has about the kind of coming encroachment of private equity companies and hedge funds um, and the frustration that they're all going to be squeezed out. Uh, so even the, even if there are some people who may not be, you know, may not love the characterizations a hundred percent, they like the overall message of the book. I think, uh, from what I hear anyway, that, you know, these are business people who, who deserve a shot to, to run the business and they may not get it. How did you capture his voice in the book? Like, did you, do you, are you able to record him or would that be? Yeah. Dangerous? Well, no, I mean, what I, what I do is, um, it's kind of uh, a reporting method that obviously um, I'm no Truman Capote, but I think the, the, it's sort of the end cold blood method, which is where you, you interview somebody a gazillion times um, and about basically everything. And then you, you, you know, you make transcripts, you look back and you try as best you can to piece together, you know, real stretches of speech uh, and, and to try to settle on the details that, that are the, the ones that feel the most real, feel the most interesting. So, yeah, we, there, were, there was a lot of kind of going over the same territory over and over again uh, with Huey so that I could uh, try to you know, recreate his voice. Because he, he does have a very, he has a very sort of humorous, mic-dropping kind of tone to, to him, the way he speaks, um, and it, I, I didn't want to lose that. I have to say, I'm like, uh, it, it left me curious, like about like who this person, uh, is you get kind of like this extra thrill on top of a reader and that you've actually like interacted with the real person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think the sort of element of mystery, the idea that, that, that it's a, a real human being is who hasn't been, it's not like, uh, even you know, Goodfellas or what's our wise guy, which is the Nick Pileggi book, right. Where it's a mobster who's telling the story with regret. It's not that this, this person hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't had a downfall. hasn't been caught. Um, and isn't sorry, you know, and I, and I really like that tone that he has, um, of defiance and, and mystery and all that. And I, th- I hope it comes through. Are you, um, are you still a weed smoker, uh, today? <laughs> I am a 48 year old father of three today. So oh, wow. I, not a lot so of time I, for that. Yeah. Not a lot, not a lot of time for that, but I'm not, 
let's just say I'm not morally, you know, opposed. I don't have any, I don't have any different feelings about weed. Let's put it that way. Um, okay. I like to ever ask everyone on the show, this on the show, and I, I'm curious uh, what direction this will take for you. Um, what is your prediction on when we will see full national legalization in America? Wow. You know, I, I, if I had to predict, I would say never in my lifetime. Ooh, okay. That, that Actually, that take is hot because you're the first person who has not thought it was going to happen. So, so tell me why. I, I think the... The, the main reason is is that, well, there's two. W- one is that the biggest bureaucracies in Washington are self-sustaining and self-perpetuating, and they just have, it's very, very difficult to get a, a big lobby from inside the government to turn itself off. And so the idea that the, that the national drug apparatus is going to stand down for some national conversation about marijuana, I, I, I just... A, don't see that happening. And then B, the second part of it is it's, it's just such an effective uh, lever that law enforcement has over the population because basically everybody takes drugs. Yeah. And if you if you keep it against the law, it just allows you to selectively prosecute anyone you want. And they've been doing that for so long to such a great, great effect for them. I, I just don't see people don't surrender, surrender power that easily. And and um you know, you've seen that it's required, you know, plebiscites at the state level to make it happen, even though overwhelmingly the population wants it. Um, but it will take a lot more than that at the national level to make to make that happen. And uh, I just don't see it for, for a while anyway. You were in uh, some hot water over uh, the exile Russian expatriate newspaper stuff, like certain like satirical uh, articles that uh, and you, I think, have apologized uh, for some of that stuff. But my question w- would be sort of knowing how long these you know words stay out there. Did that give you any pause in a situation like this, um, knowing that, you know, someone's going to be reading this in 20 years? And that is something you even sort of note in the introduction where you're like, these prison memoirs, they've really like endured. Uh, mm-hmm. The Iceberg Slam, I think uh, Donald Goins is another Donald one Goins, you, yeah, it was you, you mine, actually, c- yeah. cited in there. And it is a, it is a narrative uh, a trope in history. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think certainly what, what I've been through and what a lot of other people are going through, um, you know, either for good or for bad, we're, we're now living in an age where everybody has to realize that everything that they say, think, do could show you know it, once it's on the internet it's there forever i mean you you can you you have, you have to learn how to deal with that reality and people you know politicians now you know there was a time when you could do something when you were 28 you know in the beginning of your career and it wouldn't be in the first or second paragraph of every news story 30 years later um that's not the case anymore what i would say is you know the number one concern of of a writer is just to make good writing. Um, and I think this book is cool. I think, I think, um, you know, irrespective of the, the legal aspects of it, um, I think it tells a good story. I think it'll hold up over time. And I hope it captures a period of time and what people were thinking during that time period pretty well. So that's, that's what my, my thought process is about the future here. 
Do you like when people ask you about that, the exile stuff, or do you prefer if people don't ask you about it? I mean, I'm used to it by now. I'm a, I'm a little frustrated, frustrated by it. Um, you know, but part of my frustration is probably 95% of the work I did at the exile was this very similar to what I, what I do today. Pretty, yeah. con- pretty conventional journalism. And there was, you know, in addition to that, this element of shtick at the exile that, you know, some of it didn't age terribly well. Some of it was really offensive. Some of it I really have regrets about, but you know, it is what it is. I think, you know, every writer, that's part of what being a writer is all about is you have to, you have to live down everything you've ever published. And so, you know, I, I, I try not to get too upset about it because that's part of the job. This whole book describes a really fascinating culture uh, that grew out of gray area drug. It's like, I think from like a sociological anthropological perspective, like all this stuff is really fascinating to me. And I assume that that story is going to evolve a lot in the next 10 years as the business gets completely turned on its head and probably becomes more of a weird, like tech business story. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like when, when, when all of a sudden marijuana is run by, I don't know, whoever the equivalent Peter Thiel slash Mark Zuckerberg type characters, because that's, that's what's going to happen, right? There, it, I, I would argue that it probably already happened. Right, right. Exactly. Like the profits haven't rolled it. You know, it's a um, it's a multi-year buy-in where you won't see 100% ubiquity in the first few years. But I think the course has probably been set among large venture firms that um, in the same way that you're not going to create an online bookstore that's going to compete with Amazon, now you're probably not going to create like a weed business that competes with whatever vertically integrated Marlboro uh, comes out of this competition. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's going to be that's going to be a little different, you know, because part of the appeal of smoking weed, you know, as a as a kid, is that you know it's what your parents told you not to do. It's what all the you know the, the first way that I knew that my my teachers were full of shit was when they told me that, you know, smoking marijuana was going to lead to, you know, death, addiction, and despair. I mean, <laughs> that's the first way that you see through um, a lot of the deceptions of, of society. And now for it to be a product that's going to be trafficked to us by, I don't know, New York billionaires, that's going to be tough for me. I don't know. You know, I, I think that's a little weird, isn't it? I don't know. I, 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 I totally agree. I also think that even as a marijuana uh, enthusiast, uh, the idea of all of these like teens with the jewel vapes, like becoming just like bombed weed smokers. Uh, <laughs> like I, I do like, I, I think there is a be careful what you wish for element to putting extremely high potency, low price marijuana all over America. And I think that's probably the plan. Just like there was probably a price to putting like casino gambling all over America as well. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Which it's, doesn't mean that I don't like to get together with friends and play poker. <laughs> right, right. You know, but um, I, I think we would agree that like a poker game at, in your friend's basement and like a riverboat where it like takes off and you're stuck on it for 12 hours gambling and then it comes back, they're like pretty different. Like even though they're like the same game dynamic, I just think like if I'm buying some kind of like a 7-Eleven like disposable THC vape, 
I'm not even sure we're really like talking about the same thing anymore. <laughs> or at least the thing that Huey was doing, like filling trash bags up with like grow house weed and driving around the country. That's like a pretty, uh, pretty simple relative, you know, relative to that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think your metaphor is spot on, right? I mean, like a, a poker game between friends is, is one thing, but the, the, the other thing is a corporate exercise in basically sucking the uh, accumulated savings of desperate old people out of the population, <laughs> right? Uh, and so the vibe is, is totally different. Uh, again, I like the idea of like marijuana culture as this countercultural thing that was defiant and underground. And um, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to feel the same way about it when it's something you can buy at 7 Eleven and, and, you know, every, you know, clubbing uh, geek in America is going gonna, is gonna to take. I don't know. It's gonna t- that's going to be tough to take. Uh, well, uh, thank you uh, so much for this interview. This was great. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, This show was edited by Justine Dom, who also helped produce the show. I'm Aaron Lammer. You can get in touch with me, hi, at stoner.co. Stoner has a new episode out every Tuesday. Please subscribe. Please tell friends. Please rate the show. Not a part of any network. We don't promote it very heavily. Uh, We uh, rely on you, the listeners and fans, to spread the word. So thanks to everyone who's done that. I'll see you next week.